in worship. Our text this morning is in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're going to consider the end of the chapter, and I'll explain the context of what's been going on in the passage to this point. What we're about to read is God's holy word. And so I would ask you to stand with me as we give our attention to the scriptures. Acts chapter 2. We're going to start our passage in verse 41. Peter's just finished his sermon to the people gathered at Pentecost. And our passage explains what happened next. And it is awesome in our sight. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. We'll conclude our reading of God's holy word at that point. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage that's indicative of what you were doing in the early church and what you desired your people do and devote themselves to and your response to that father may we not just hear the historical record of pentecost in acts chapter 2 but may we see in it for ourselves individually for your church collectively corporately congregationally what it is that you have for us to consider from this text text we ask it, ask it in christ's name amen you may be seated I'm looking forward to our time together tonight for the uh, more informal part of what we'll do. I'd like to start off with a couple of introductions, though, this morning. I'd like to introduce you to my chair. Three knee injuries and two knee surgeries, uh, and my knees are well over 100,000 miles. And so I do, uh, from time to time, use uh, some assistance to... Preach, I promise, just because I'm sitting down, I won't make the service longer, or the sermon longer, uh, because I'm all nice and comfy up here, uh, but it is a help to me. Uh, The second introduction is how I was introduced to this text. It was as I was teaching through the book of Acts, sequentially, I started in Acts chapter 1 and preached all the way through the books, it was about six years ago to this month that I came across this text in Acts chapter 2. And I first saw its significance, not just of a historical event, but of what was going on in the church, what God wanted to go on in his church. And as such, it's also a mandate for ministers. That if this is what God wants going on in his church, this is what the ministers of the gospel ought to be focused on, to make sure that that's what's happening, to give their attention to these things that are in this text. And so I view it as a mission statement, a mission statement for Christ's church 
And a mission statement for me as a minister, but a mission statement to know what is our purpose? What are we doing here? Why get to up 9 a.m., 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning? Why every Sunday? What are, what are we here to do? What, what do we want to accomplish in our attendance of God's worship? You're familiar with the concept of a mission statement, right? Corporate mission statements or not-for-profits not have mission statements. I went to the internet and found a couple that kind of resonated with me. JetBlue, the airline, uh, theirs was a little curious. Their mission statement is to inspire humility in the air and on the ground. I'm not sure... I'm not sure about the inspiring humility. I'd like my pilot to be fully proud of his ability to keep the plane in the air. So I'd love to talk with them about that one. But humility is a good thing. I mean, that's, that's not a bad thing. But they, they put it in their mission statement. That's part of the reason they exist. And so I, I, that's curious. Tesla. We, we, we've heard a lot about Tesla in the news, the automobiles they make. Here's their mission statement. To accelerate the world's transition transition to sustainable energy. I thought they were just about selling cars. And they do. And, but it sounds like they don't only want to sell cars, they want to sell other products that might use other alternate forms of energy. And maybe, really, their mission statement is to, to be part of the transition to using alternative forms of energy. And so, okay, curious. Uh, the third one, PayPal. I thought this was excellent. Because this is exactly what I expected when I looked at PayPal's mission statement. It says, to build the web's most convenient, secure, cost-effective payment solution. It's web-based. It's convenient. It's available for pretty much everyone everywhere. It's for the whole world. It's effective. It's secure. And it does, this mission statement explains exactly what PayPal does. And I thought that was pretty concise and on point. The CPA firm I worked for 20-some-odd years ago, the boss told me the mission statement of that firm. And it was concise, and it was clear, and it was memorable. And he told me the mission statement is to make money, <laughs> period. And that's, you know, that kind of clears things up. You buy things that help you make money, and you don't buy things that don't. And you hire people. And you take on clients that meet the mission statement. He went on to explain the mission statement that the way to make money, the way to succeed in business, and this is an exact quote, is to lie, cheat, and steal better than the other guy. This was Providence, Rhode Island, CPA firm. It's part of what was a good rollicking shove out of the CPA world for me, that's just me speaking, into the ministry. And so as we think about a mission statement, I think this passage is just that. It's, a mission, it's the mission of the church. It's what we ought to be doing. You can remember what has happened in the passage to this point. Acts chapter 1, Christ had ascended to the, heaven, to, to the Father, was resurrected and ascended. You remember maybe that they picked Matthias to replace Judas, who had gone out and hanged himself. And that's part of the narrative of Acts 1. Acts 2 records the event of Pentecost itself. The beginning of the chapter talks about they were gathered in one place and the Spirit came down upon them and filled all who were in that place. The Spirit was used to coming down, but he would come upon people called to a particular task, the artisans of the temple. 
The Spirit came upon them for that work and left them. The Spirit came upon Samson to slay the lion and left Samson. The Spirit came upon Saul as king. And when Saul went irreparably into sin, the Spirit departed Saul the king. But now the Spirit comes to indwell. And what we have following that record, recording of the Spirit coming upon and indwelling to stay is Peter's sermon that goes all the way through Acts 2 and concludes in our passage this morning. And in Peter's sermon, he called many to repentance. And after he did, verse 41 in our text records exactly what was going on in the church in the next weeks and months. And I think what we have here is God's purpose for his church, what he wants it to be and what we should be doing. I'll summarize the passage this way. Through our devotion to Scripture's fourfold mission for the church, through our devotion to Scripture's fourfold mission for the church, God will do his work of building the church. Yes, we have a place in our devotion, in what we do, but it's Christ that does the building. It's God that does the work of moving and changing and shaping and forming his church. And so the way I want to approach our text this morning is to look at what historically happened in the book of Acts, in this passage, in its historical context, and just read it for what it says. And once we've done with that, we're going to make some application. What does this mean for us today? What, what should we take from this? What does our church has the phrase, and I love it, and it's not original to me, what difference will this passage make on Thursday? How does it change how we live? And so, Lord willing, that's what we'll go through. But I want to start with this fourfold mission of the church, a fourfold devotion. And I tried to read the text in such a way that that would come out. But if, if, if perhaps I didn't accomplish that, let me explain it. The fourfold devotion is to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And so we start with the apostles' teaching. You remember the apostles were those who spent four years, well, the better part of three years, with Jesus, and he taught them. They sat under his teaching. And so the, those apostles received teaching from Jesus that they were now giving in Acts chapter 2 to the church. Jesus had told them, search the scriptures, for those are they which speak of me. And when he said that, he was talking about the Old Testament. The Gospels had not yet been written. If Jesus ascended about 30, 33 AD, whatever it is, the first Gospel was written probably 60 AD. So the Gospels didn't exist. The Epistles didn't exist. None of Paul's writings were available. So when Jesus said to search the Scriptures, he's telling him, go back and look at the Old Testament, and you're going to see everything about me. I'm everywhere in those, those 39 books of the Old Testament. And so Jesus pointed them back, and so uh, those were the scriptures at the time. But what happens in Acts chapter 2 is after the Spirit descends and indwells people, Peter's sermon begins in verse 14 of Acts chapter 2. He begins explaining Joel chapter 2, where the prophecy was made of this very day of Pentecost, that the Spirit would come down and indwell and do mighty works, and they'd see great miracles happening. And Peter explains that Joel told you this was going to happen. This shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. Joel told you about this. And then Peter goes on. 
verse 22 and following, he explains Christ's crucifixion. That had to just stun. It stunned his apostles. They were stunned that Christ got crucified. It had to stun the whole world. We thought it was he who should have redeemed Israel. And he gets crucified. And Peter says, yep, exactly. He got crucified, and that's how he was going to redeem Israel. And so he explains the crucifixion and the resurrection from Psalm 16. Peter doesn't make up his own text. He goes to the Old Testament, Psalm 16, and says, this is what Psalm 16 was always about. It was always about Jesus. And then he goes on, as he concludes, he explains the ascension of Christ, the returning to the Father from Psalm 110. And so all Peter did was take the Old Testament and preach it and explain Christ out of it. And so this is the apostles' teaching. This is what we should understand, how the Gospels and the apostles explain the Christ of the Old Testament and bring the full flower of the Gospel and the Word of God to the people who are in the hearing of the sermon. And, of course, Paul's and James and John's epistles help to do the same. The scriptures are the apostles' teaching. So when we pick up our Bible to read it, if we're reading the Old Testament, we're reading what Jesus said is what first spoke of him. As we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're reading the contextualization of Jesus' life on earth and how he fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. And as we read the epistles, They harmonize the Gospels and the Old Testament to say this is the Christ that we're pointing to you, you too. He is the only hope of salvation. And so we're to devote ourselves. The hearers of Peter's sermon were to know they were to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. But it goes on. They were to devote themselves to fellowship. And you've probably heard the Greek word koinonia. That's the Greek word that's used to describe or to to speak of fellowship. And it literally means a having in common. If you're in a business partnership, you and somebody else start up a business, you have in common not only the assets of the business, you have in common a goal. You have more than your relationship with your business partner in common. You have a common goal to build a product or sell a service or whatever your business purpose is, to make money to feed your family. They share that in common. They have fellowship in that business. Brother and sister have a fellowship of having been raised by the same parents. They have that in common. More than the relationship just brother and sister, they have in common, they were raised by the same parents in the same family, in the same household, with the same mindset and worldview. And so that fellowship is spoken of in the, in the passage. What did the Acts 2 hearers have they had in common the apostles teaching they had heard Peter's sermon they had heard Christ explained we're going to see that they had an awe of Christ they had that in common that united their hearts they had that love and unity for one another we together and by God's grace the church would not long after as our brother taught in Sunday school this morning come under persecution And one of the great benefits of persecution, of difficulty, of hardship, is it knits believers' hearts together. When somebody else comes along and encourages us from the scriptures, and they can say, look, I've actually been where you are right now. I know what you're going through. 
That commonality, that common ground unites hearts together. And so the believers of that day would have all of those things in common. They had the breaking of bread. This is three of four. And I believe ultimately what this means is the Lord's table. Fellowship, when we get to the application section, we'll look at what fellowship means and see how that relates to the Lord's table. So I think they're connected. But ultimately, breaking bread was given to the church in the upper room, the Passover supper, which Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, what Christ was doing in the upper room when he broke the loaf apart. And the breaking of bread, I think, ultimately has that significance. I think it also has the significance of eating our meals together as God's people in our homes and sharing a table and food together. But I think ultimately it speaks to the upper room and the Lord's table. What they did was much more organic. And I don't know what the practice here is. I know what the practice that I've seen and that I've led. Every once in a while at the church where I'm at now, what we do is I'd start the sermon and then we'd go downstairs and we'd eat the meal together. And then I'd finish the sermon and then I'd break open a loaf. And we just shared a meal together. The fellowship had already started happening. The enjoyment of each other's company, the worshiping of God, the praise of God, the conversation, hearts were already knit together. And so I'm not advocating for that, but I think that's the more organic sense of what really was going on. It says, when the supper was finished, Christ took a cup. So I think they had the Passover meal. And so the breaking of bread, there's something about eating a meal together that changes our mindset and mentality to get ready to fellowship and love on each other and, 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 and enjoy the things that we have in common, just the way it seems to work out. I will have you notice in verse 41, it mentions, and they were being baptized. Let me read it. So, so those who received his word were baptized and were added to that day about 3,000 souls. What we kind of have here is the sacraments. Baptism in the Lord's table. This was what they had in common. And this has caused their fellowship and this united them together. I'll say a little bit more about that. Then it says the prayers. And if you, uh, if you know a little bit of Greek, you'll, you'll understand that the word the is in the text. And the, it's like when we drive off after the service is over, you could go to a car, or you could go to your car. The prayers is, is that type of sense. These are very specific prayers that are being offered. And we don't know what it is exactly. I'm going to speculate a little bit. The prayers is praying for the things that God has told us in his word that he wants to do. Be holy for I am holy. So if we're to pray the prayers, we say, Lord, make me holy as you are holy. And we know we're asking for something God wants to do, something he wants to answer. That would be a the prayer. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. Lord, make me like Jesus. Take the sin out and put Jesus in and replace it. That would be the prayers. And so I think there's a devotion to those four things. The apostles' teaching to the fellowship. The togetherness, the unity, the loving each other, breaking bread and prayers. And that fourfold develop, uh, devotion produced a singular development 
one thing happened. And I think Christ spoke of it in Matthew 16, 18. You probably know the verse. That Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I think with this fourfold devotion, if we make this our purpose today, that Christ will build his church. He'll do the work. It'll be Christ doing. We'll do the stuff. We'll be obedient. But nothing good that would happen in the church would be the result. It's not a cause and effect. We did the devotion, so we got Christ. No, Christ said, you just do what I've asked you to do and let me worry about the building of the church. I'll take care of that. Build numerically. Build in spiritual maturity and development. Add those who might be called even out of this number to go into the ministry. Add teachers and Sunday school teachers and nursery workers and whatever the church needs. You've got people who do the bulletin. You've got people who do the website. You've got people who do the sermon audio. That's Christ building his church. I'm a proponent of every member ministry. That we all should have something that we do. It might be, it's the musicians. It's, it's the flowers, the decorators down in the fellowship hall. It's everybody who does a little something to make this place more suited for worship and more welcoming. But our passage lays out several things that happen. The, devo- the development is singular, that Christ would build his church, but our passage explains, contextualizes some of that. Three aspects to it, I think. Verse 43, in awe of God through miracles happening. And you're kind of like, well, nobody's being raised from the dead. What are we going to do? How, how are people going to be in awe of God? Well, let's read our passage. Verse uh, 43. And we, in awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Let's not mistake it. They're talking about the lame walking and the blind seeing and the dead being raised. They're talking about that, and there was a reason for that. In that context, God needed to certify the message that the apostles were giving. And he did that through the miracles being done. And so God was saying, this is my message. These are my messengers. And it's proven because of the miracles that are happening around it. Did you know that you all have been witness to miracles greater than these? Have you ever seen somebody come to faith in Jesus Christ? That is the dead raised to life eternal. Have you seen somebody battling sin and battling and battling and finally conquer it? That is the sanctification that God does in his church. You see somebody who wasn't a teacher but then steps up? You see somebody who didn't, wasn't doing anything, maybe was coming irregularly, start worshiping regularly God? Those are miracles. Those are awesome acts of God. If, if anything... We're the more blessed than the apostles and the the Acts 2 crowd because we see awesome miracles of God, spiritual miracles. And so awe of God was coming upon the church. That ought to be something that the session and the ministers of every church in Calvary Presbytery and every gospel preaching church is looking for to happen in their church. The people are seeing God do stuff that only God can do and all comes upon them. Secondly, verses 44 and 45. People are meeting together 
And the church is meeting needs of other people at personal expense unsolicited. Nobody asked them to do this. It just happened. Look at 44 and 45. And all who believed were, were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, let me be clear. This is not an early form of communism. Nobody asked them to do this. And certainly the government didn't come along. There were no Roman soldiers saying, hey, give me your, give me your, your flock over here. I'm going to sell that and give it to your brother. Down. No, they just did it. Remember what's happening. This is Pentecost. People had come from all over the world. And amazing things were happening. And they decided, you know what? I'm going to stick around. I want to see what happens next. And they ran out of money for hotel when I came here this week, I was looking at 150 bucks a room. My goodness. I uh, wasn't staying at the Ritz-Carlton either. But even in that day, they hit inns. Remember? The Bible, and they had inns. They was, and they didn't have food. And so people said, you know what? You need something? Come over to my house. We'll have a meal. I'll share with you. And they were selling their stuff and saying, you know what? If you need a hotel to stay in, I'm going to help you pay that. If you want to see unity in the church, it happens when people start giving their own money. And you do this for, your, for missionaries? You're, you're doing this stuff already to make the gospel go forward. This is part of Christ's development of his church. Lastly, church attendance and in-home hospitality and, 40, and fellowship. Let me, 46 and 47. And day by day, attending the temple together, they were there because large gatherings probably, I mean, I don't know if you could have 40 or 50 people in your house. It would be a struggle in, in most houses. So they were meeting at the temple. They were, they were using that facility because they needed larger gathering. Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. There is something glorious about in-home fellowship and hospitality. Making our homes available to God's people. Where, you know, yes, we meet in the church in a beautiful fellowship hall. Just, you, you've, you've got the bee's knees or whatever, they, whatever the kids are saying these days. You've got an awesome fellowship hall. And that's a great place to have fellowship. But it's good, but... Home fellowship is gooder. It's good also. Just to be in your home and to open your home. And, and you know, maybe it's a small group. In, in a large group, sometimes it's hard to really get down to serious discussion and really praising God together or really opening up and being transparent with one another. It happens in the home. And so they were in their homes and they were sharing their food together. They were having a party. They were having a good time. Glad and generous hearts, it says. And they were having favor with all the people. Now, the commentators were pretty unanimous on this. What it said is that when Christians behave like Christians, behave like Christ would have them, everybody says, wow, they've got something. They've got something I don't have. I disagree with the comment. That's true. That's true. But I think what it's saying is, they were having favor with all sorts of people. Gentiles were saying, wow, this is your Jesus? 
this is what he does? This crucified, risen Savior, this is what he creates? I want in. And so, as the Old Testament had prophesied, every people, tongue, and tribe, and nation, through you, Abraham, all nations of the earth will be blessed. It's happening. It's beginning right here in Acts 2. And, you know, Romans, and Africans, and people from all over the world were gathered for the Pentecost service, Pentecost Day event, the feast, and they're seeing God at work, and they're saying, I want to be a part of that. Whatever Jesus is that would include me in that, I want that. And so I think we see that. And so again, verse 47b, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We're familiar familiar with altar calls, and I'm not against them. But I think what this text is saying, people were being saved out in the highways and byways and in the marketplace and on the road to Damascus and in various and sundry places. And as God saved them out there, he brought them into his church and added to the number in that fashion. So let me make some points about our forefront. That's what I think happened in the book of Acts. I think that's what the text is telling us is the historical record of what actually happened. But I want to talk about this fourfold devotion as it affects us. And I'll do so in three points, because again, I think the fellowship and the breaking of bread kind of go together. They were devoted to the scriptures. We should be devoted to the scriptures. You remember what Peter said in his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 1, I think it is, maybe 3. As newborn babies crave the sincere milk of the word. And we know what infants are like. We know when it's time to be fed, everything stops. And I'm going to be fed. We ought to have that craving for God's word. The sincere milk of the word. That doesn't mean we never get to solid meat. But I think it does mean we should never get over the the gospel. The basic facts. The basic truths. Christ died for sinners. Of whom I'm the worst, Paul said. He never got over that. That never became old news to him. And so, desire the sincere milk of the word. When Paul was was training Timothy. He said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I think it is, Timothy, do the work of the ministry, and he specifically identified, among other things, to preach the word. Preach the word. Preach the scriptures. Preach the gospels which are being written. Explain Christ from the Old Testament. Unify, connect, Show the coherence between everything that has happened and the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension and give it its sense. Because Hosea in the Old Testament had said, God had said through Hosea, that my people are consumed for lack of knowledge. He's talking about Israel, and Israel's going through it. They're probably back in the land after exile, but, you know, things are not going well. My people are consumed for lack of knowledge. And it's not lack of knowledge about science. It's not lack of knowledge about politics. It's not lack of knowledge about culture. It's lack of knowledge of the scriptures. Without the scriptures, we die on the vine. We wilt. And so it is to say, if it's in the scriptures, it needs to be in the church. If it isn't in the scriptures... We've got to ask ourselves, does it belong in the church? And if it's forbidden in the scriptures, it has no place in the church. 
devote ourselves to the word of God. Secondly, the fellowship and the Lord's table. This is hanging out together. This is enjoying each other's company. Um, Go fishing together. Take in a ball game. And I won't get into Clemson versus Carolina and which side of the the fence you're supposed to sit on. I'm not going there. Uh, Actually, if a Clemson fan and a Carolina fan got together and went to a ball game together, that'd be a good picture of people who have nothing in common getting together for fellowship and worship. God, uh, go to your kids' ball games together. You got kids, you got grandkids, just sit there. And, and, you know, what happens on the field, don't be screaming at your kid or at the ump. Be talking to a believer, a fellow believer about your Jesus. And just enjoy your time together. Go out to dinner together. Church work days would be an example. And ultimately, it's the Lord's table. At the Lord's table, I like, I've, I've done a good bit of research. I like the way you do it here. I think it's every two months. Correct me if I'm wrong, the Lord's table. One of the things that always concerns me personally about me, about the Lord's table doing it like weekly or every once a month, is that it gets to be common or routine or commonplace or ordinary. I just go through the motions. The church I grew up in had communion like twice a year or something like that. But when, when it was the time for communion, it was an awesome moment. We were doing something unique and out of there. And we can do weekly communion, but make sure it's awesome. Make sure that it is a true celebration of Christ in our unity and our commonality in the things that put us together. In prayer, they were devoting themselves to the prayers. Pray for salvation of people understanding the election of God. I don't know that God will save a particular person But I know that nobody gets saved unless God draws them. It is the electing, selecting, beyond our comprehension. Why did he choose me? That's the great mystery. Why me? You know, me and my Gentile family and saved my parents two years before I was born. And why? Why? That makes no sense. But we pray for the salvation of our loved ones Because we know God saves. And he's the only one that does it. Nobody comes. No man comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. Jesus said it. Pray with the certainty that that would be God's will. Thus the devotion of the prayers. Hard thing. If you've got a family member, an unsaved loved one, it's hard to pray for them every single day. Devote ourselves to that kind of diligent prayer for that salvation. Beg our God, for their souls, because we know the end. Pray Christ will build his church. He said, I'm going to do it. We don't have to wonder if this is, this is his will. We don't know how it will happen. We don't know when it will happen. We don't know what it will look like. I can just give you a personal example. We've done a lot of stuff at Providence Church, outreach and you know, evangelism, and none of it has worked. Nothing. But God built the church anyway. I mean, he brought people from, we got people coming from 45 minutes in one direction to an hour and a half in the other. People I'd never met. I never talked with these people. I never, it wasn't my winning, charming personality or they just, God, over here. 
Just do the stuff. Just be obedient and Christ will build his church. We know that's his will. The community and unity, just be devoted to, to loving each other, to smile. I, I, again, I got inundated with a bunch of first names this morning. And it's like, man, if I'm ever back here, I'm going to make it my purpose to learn every single first name. There's something about calling somebody by their first name that builds friendship and community and unity. Hey, you, right? You're the one with that car, kind of car over there. That, okay, that's something about that name thing. Something interesting happens. I think, if, I were, if anybody, somebody were to ask me, where do you get church membership from? I would say from this passage. Look at verse 41, and I'll, and I'll close with this thought. You're not supposed to say that as a pastor, because then if you go on for seven more minutes, everybody's like, you lied. Anyway, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day by 3,000 souls. A couple of things come out of that. They received the word. They believed the gospel. They were baptized. And God added to the church 3,000. Somebody was keeping records, or at least approximate records. This is the membership rolls. And then verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. God's going to save his people and then bring them into the church. And ultimately what we have here is just what you've always heard. What are the means of grace? The word, the sacraments, and prayer. Devote ourselves to those things and Christ will build his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, I thank you for your word. Father, you haven't left us to guess or to wonder or to puzzle or to debate or argue over what it is is our mission statement. You put it right here in your word, right at the beginning of the, of the, the, the New Testament form of the church. And so, Father, just help us to read it, see it for what it is, and to obey it, and then just stand back in awe and watch what you do and give you all the praise and the glory. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's respond to God's word with our hymn of response. May the mind of Christ my Savior. When we read his word, we know his mind. Stand with me. Let's sing number 644. May the mind of Christ my Savior.